At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. We started doing this right around the time COVID hit. And um, one of the first things we observed was that for people that are telecommuting all or most of the time, their user satisfaction is actually twice, 2x, what it is of people that are on base all or most of the time. Now, what explains that? Um, you know, some people have basically just said, well, you know, they're home working in their fuzzy bunny slippers or whatever, and they're just happier. But I don't buy that because of the way we ask the question, and also because we have lots of other data on the service levels that they're getting. So a lot of what explains that, frankly, is just differences in the network. When you're home on a good Wi-Fi connection, assuming you have good Wi-Fi and assuming you have a good computer, you can connect via VPN to our network in a way that frankly gives you better performance than if you're on most of our bases. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And I have a packed show today that's really going to rival any of my previous shows in terms of the amount of information you're going to take away. So hold on. In recent years, user experience and customer experience have been one of the primary conversations happening in government. Yet with all that focus, it really has been one of them focused on civilian agencies and at the state and local levels of government. But there are things happening, perhaps behind the scenes, within the Department of Defense to improve the user experience for the warfighter. In this episode, we're going to extract some of those key programs and priorities with U.S. Air Force's Chief Experience Officer, Colt Whittle. Not only is he the first CXO for the Air Force, but he was the first one to hold this position within the Department of Defense, but that's changing, as we're going to discuss. And as I mentioned, this is a packed show, so I'm also fortunate enough to have Mary Ann Monroe and Nate Aiken, two senior experience leaders from Maximus, who are going to talk about best practices on implementing some of the priorities that I discussed with Colt. And not only how to implement, but more importantly, how to make it sustainable. But first, I'm excited to bring Colt on. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being part of this discussion. Yeah, thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate it. So before we we jump into kind of conversations around, around experience, from a, a higher level, um, I know you've been in and around government since the early 90s. I'm curious to see how you've seen government's approach to technology change over that period of time. You've obviously been in the in the commercial sector, you've been in the government sector now, and like I said, been around government. How how have you seen that evolve? The uh, I think the biggest single thing, uh, frankly, is just user experience is now a term 
that um, is used within senior leaders of the Department of the Air Force, and I would even say within DOD. Um, and that's a fairly recent event. Um, it used to be that if you talked user experience of IT, um, people in the Air Force would say, well, you can't call it that. And I would be scratching my head and saying, well, that's industry standard term. That's what everybody calls it. If I don't call it that, people aren't going to know what I'm talking about. And then they would suggest alternate names because user experience sounded fluffy. You know, it sounded like we were selling vacations or cosmetics or something like that. And of course, that's not true. Well, that is true if that's what you're doing. But in in the Pentagon, um, user experience is a is a different thing, right? The mission's different. Um, and so it's just different. So I would say the number one thing that I've observed over this time period is that UX has gone from something that you have to name something other than what it is to something that is actively talked about um, and is, uh, I wouldn't, it's, it's far from our number one priority. We have some pretty big priorities, as you would imagine, but it's up there. What would you credit that change in, in mindset, um, kind of driving that forward? Because honestly, when, when I have conversations like these, it feels like the technology takes a back burner and really it's that, that mindset change around how certain pieces incorporate into the mission. So what would you credit into that mindset shift into the prioritization of user experience? I think really, I, and I, I have no data to back this up, but just my personal observation is, I think some of it is, and I don't mean this in any bad way, I think some of it is a little bit uh, generational. Um, the uh, senior leaders in, in the Pentagon now are um, a lot of them, you know, are, you know, some of them are still baby boomers, but there's a fair number of, you know, Gen X types like myself that we under, you know, we understand technology, I would say a little better. And by the way, we don't, you know, it's not like my kids, Gen, you know, was it Gen Y now um, or Gen Z? I forget where it's like the air they breathe. Um, the, uh, but I think, I think part of it is just generational. I think people intuitively understand that um, their computer should work better. You know, it should not crash all the time and startups should not take 15, 20 minutes. And applications that do fairly simple things like track your, you know, annual fitness test and requirements and how your, you know, compliance is with that. Those things should be relatively intuitive and easy to use and they should get you to the data quickly that you need. So I think part of it is just frankly generational. I would agree with you. We've we've had that very similar conversation on the show. I mean, I, I think you're getting folks like yourself and even younger that are in leadership positions that understand and prioritize some of the things that perhaps weren't understood and weren't prioritized in the past. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm glad you brought up some of the elements you just did, like um, like computers booting up and, and working or crashing as it were. But before I jump into that, because I do want to touch on that, because there's some research you're doing there, but across your career, what really drove you towards being interested in experience, how things are designed, work, engage with us? What drove you towards that interest? So I think, I think it goes back to when I was actually fairly young. I was, I was always a little bit of an oddball somewhere between um, you know, I enjoyed science and math to some degree, well, to a large degree, but I also really enjoyed, um, 
I don't know, I would say, you know, science and math, by the way, can be incredibly creative. Uh, just to be clear, engineering is inherently creative, but um, also some of the kind of um, what people would think of as, um, you know, creative and design related topics. Um, for, for a long time, when I was a kid, um, I wanted to be an architect. And um, I, I even have a binder somewhere, of probably a 100 or more, you know, uh, drawings. Um, and uh, I would imagine that mom has it on the shelf somewhere. So um, the idea of, uh, you know, designing, designing buildings and physical spaces has always been kind of near and dear to me. And um, so to some degree, that's, you know, part of what I do in the digital space today. I almost feel like I should get up and invite my wife in here because I feel like you guys would have uh, more in common. She's a she's a STEM teacher. Your your comment about engineering being inherently creative is exactly what she looks to teach um, to kind of the next generation, the the K through five students. And um, my oldest, who's nine, absolutely just embodies that. He likes to sit down with just a box of things or will find random things and likes to make creations sitting downstairs right now is a, is a leprechaun trap queued up for Friday that he, he took a, just a bunch of different pieces around the house to, to figure out a way to, uh, to trap a leprechaun because that's something that my, my wife likes to, to do is bring creativity in the, the form of engineering and in the form of science and math and that type of thing. So um, definitely, definitely agree with you. That's something that we prioritize. I mean, not, not just in our household, but I think just, uh, just in general. Um, so it's, it's cool to see you kind of had that, that same type of, I guess, upbringing and, and perhaps parents that really look to continue that really, really help you find that spark around that. I, I think a lot of people to try to, I, I don't know. I I don't know exactly where it comes from, but I think it's a it's sort of an old way of thinking, kind of this left brain right brain thing. I don't really buy into that, and I never have. I mean, it may apply to some people, um, but uh, I know a lot of people that are creativity. They're they're intensely creative. They're also um, intensely technical, and um, you know, I think that's also, frankly, just it's probably more common than not, you know, in, in the digital space. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, no, glad to hear that. I, and, and I hope that, you know, I hope that education and guidance counselors and everyone else are catching up on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think they are. And, and part of it is because of roles like what my wife has and, and other people in, in the different counties across the country where they they're looking to not only educate the kids, but educate the teachers on best ways to incorporate these types of elements into their everyday everyday thinking, which is kind of cool. They're essentially coaching them. Um, so I want to come back to what I mentioned before. You talked about some of the efforts that you're working on um, around perhaps uh, efficiencies within just, just computers, right? Things booting sure. up, um, things crashing, et cetera. And you and your team actually did your own research on this, where you're monitoring laptops or, or computers and systems across uh, a multitude of bases around the country to find out and understand what that kind of ecosystem looks like. Are, are computers crashing? Are they booting up? What is the usability of the machines? And before we even started, uh, before we even pressed record, you and I were talking and 
you were saying, I mean, it, ha it, it starts there because you have to literally have the machine to be able to operate and do what you're doing. So what are you and your team finding from this, from this research where you're monitoring these, these systems? Yeah, great question. Um, so when we started doing this, first of all, let me just explain the reason why we had to do this. Um, as you would imagine, um, we have a lot of tools out there to monitor our networks and our computers. Um, but those tools tend to be focused on links and availability and um, security. And that's all good, right? We need all of that, right? You know, if we lose links, if we lose part of our bandwidth, the, you know, connectivity to a base, whatever, obviously we need to monitor that. And so we've, we've covered off on that, I would say, fairly well um, and continue to do so. But the part that we were missing um, is, uh, and it's, you know, what I just what I just described, I would say, is necessary but not sufficient. Um, if you're a networking nerd or any of us, you know, on the line, um, it would be monitoring layers one through four in the OSI model, but not all seven. And the reality is that in order to have a good user experience, you have to make the IT, it all has to perform at all seven layers of the stack. Um, and so, you know, we, we put in place some tools that help us do that. So we can monitor user experience at the glass, you know, as the airman is actually using software on you know, his or her PC or other device. So we can monitor that kind of performance and startup time and everything else. And then we also put in place some tools to monitor the performance of the wide area network, but not just at the link level. We're talking all seven layers. And that would include monitoring services that we get from other government agencies or other parts of DOD, like the PKI-related infrastructure, public key encryption, you know, that we use to secure our network. Um, so now, long-winded answer, but um, but what have we found? Um, some very interesting things. Um, first of all, vast ranges in performance from location to location, um, which is not surprising, right? You know, if you think about it, we have huge distances that we have to cover with our networks, um, and so that's not super surprising. But we would see differences and ranges that we wouldn't necessarily expect even given the distances we have. So we got to dig to the bottom of that. We would also see things that we just wouldn't expect. Um, bases that from time to time, even though where they're positioned on the network, they should be getting excellent performance. And for some reason they're not, right? So what explains that? How do we go solve that? Um, another interesting thing is that we, we started doing this right around the time COVID hit. And um, one of the first things we observed was that for people that are telecommuting all or most of the time, their user satisfaction is actually twice, 2x, what it is of people that are on base all or most of the time. So 2x difference in user satisfaction. Now, what explains that? Um, you know, some people have basically just said, well, you know, they're home working in their fuzzy bunny slippers or whatever, and they're just happier. But I don't buy that because of the way we ask the question and also because we have lots of other data on the service levels that they're getting. So a lot of what explains that, frankly, is just differences in the network. When you're home on a good Wi-Fi connection, assuming you have good Wi-Fi and assuming you have a good computer that's, you know, we've provided you from the government, um, you can connect via VPN to our network in a way that frankly gives you better performance than if you're on most of our bases. So there's, and there's other things beyond that, but 
you know, it's really when you look at the empirical um, evidence, it's not a big surprise that our telecommuters get 2x the customer user satisfaction than folks on base. It feels like, I mean, whether you're in government or whether you're in the commercial sector, one of the biggest challenges that that folks like yourself and others face is you have you you base you, you commission these types of of studies or or you're monitoring and doing research and then it's kind of actuating on that right it's it's being able to move the needle based on what you're finding how are you able to take what you're doing and turn it into some type of impact within within your role great question um i mean that's you know, that's where it meets the road, right? And um, so many ways, um, but a lot of it is using the data to understand what's happening and then put it in context and then use the data to make the case for what we need to do about it. Um, and quite often we're making arguments to do things that many other people have made the same argument before, but whenever we've got it backed up by a lot of evidence, and show how it's impacting user experience. And not only show that, but tie user experience and performance to things like productivity and maybe even mission impact. If we can do all of those things and then tell the story in a clear, succinct way, backed up by data, that's where we get real change. And so, you know, that's, you know, we, we use this data to help make the case to significantly increase spending on computers to help organizations understand that they can get better performance just by swapping out old spinning disk drives and replacing it with a solid state drive. Um, we're, what else? Um, we, we use this data very tactically um, it, to monitor the wide area network performance that we deliver to each base and the base area network performance and then address it on a very tactical basis. So. And this is different to some degree. Um, you know, we, we have programs, acquisition programs that are designed to just do a, a refresh base by base of lots of technology. And I have nothing against those. Those are good because re reality is we need to go through and, and do that kind of a tech refresh. But when you're talking about performance, um, you know, I, I kind of prefer sort of a, um, you know, to use Air Force parlance, you know, more of a precision guided you know, attack type of approach. So let's monitor performance at the at the base boundary at all of our bases. And if we see a test, like say our 10 meg upload test or our OCSP test or our, you know, three-way handshake test, if we see one of these tests go out of range, well, that's a problem. Um, and the links could be fine. The hardware could be fine. It could just be somebody made a routing change somewhere and it did something weird and nobody fully understood the implications of it and they may not even realize they have a problem so we're monitoring for those kind of things proactively and frankly i think a lot of our very best work right now is being done by people that are just monitoring that data proactively and then going and addressing it and they with very little fanfare and you know hardly any recognition other than you know i try to i try to recognize them for it so there's, it's a combination of things. As you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm really curious to get, get your, your take here and, and perhaps some advice on how you do it. Um, as you're talking about the, the research and, and what you're finding, what I'm kind of envisioning is, is you probably spend a lot of time with people closer to 
myself who are kind of in programs and, and more understand the mission orientation of the program, but aren't as technical, right? Or don't have the the background context and knowledge about not only what you're what you're obviously invested in, but why it's so important and, and the intricacies of that. What are some of the the things that you do when you're in that position where you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't have the type of type of context, who understands the mission and you need to be able to communicate why what you're saying is so important to to move the needle for them? What, what what are some of your thoughts there? What are some some advice you might give to the listeners that are that are in those types of situations moving forward? Well, number one is find find a, a, a one of the best ways to get leverage on a situation is measure it and then provide transparency to what you're measuring. Right, that is a source of very powerful leverage. And if you go into the commercial world, you'll find that a one really great in a way to advance your career is find something that's not being quantified, figure out how to go measure it and quantify it and track it and provide transparency to it and improve the, you know, the metric. And that's really all we're doing here. Right. Um, we knew we were managing links and doing a pretty decent job of that. We know we're managing security and doing a pretty decent job of that. Um, but we were not managing user experience from the airman perspective. Um, and so that's really the gap that we've closed. And then, so that would be big observation number one, go, go find a way to measure what's not being measured and then provide transparency and accountability and, and a plan to improve it and then engage the senior levels in your organization. Senior people, by the way, side note, um, a lot of times are insulated by their organization from the details. But if you can take a chart that has a really good proxy for overall performance as experienced by airmen, and it's base by base across the Department of the Air Force and lay that down in front of senior leaders in the Air Force, um, that is something that they want to engage with, they want to know, you're informing them, you're you're making them more educated about what's going on in the area they're responsible for, and they they have to act, right, if there's a problem. So there's that. Um, the other, the other main kind of strategy, and there, there's several more. I'd have to think about it, but that's critically important. Is um, you got to tell a story that the organization can relate to, you know, at a gut level. Um, and so the one that I talk about, you know, about every time I'm, and I, I do a lot of, you know, appearances before large groups and in, in our, you know, in our ecosystem, and. Um, but I talk a lot about um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Fitz and World War II and basically the beginnings of human factories engineering, which it turns out occurred within, you know, what's now the Air Force, right? It was the Army Air Corps, I think, at the time. And basically the story is um, the, uh, we were losing hundreds of planes for reasons that weren't necessarily they were shot down. A lot of them were crashes. Um, and the Air Force was very concerned that we were not selecting the right people to be pilots. And so they engaged um, Lieutenant Colonel Paul Fitz, who actually had left the Air Force, gone to get a psychology degree. And um, the Air Force contracted him for help in, you know, finding out the characteristics of a good pilot so they could, you know, select people to be pilots and do it more effectively and lose less planes. And um, Paul Fitz, um, started looking at the data 
such as it was at the time, but he, he began looking at the records of the crashes and began to notice patterns in there. And this is where, you know, you may have heard stories about people landing planes and instead of putting down the landing gear, they opened the bomb bay doors and things like that. And that's what that was. They, he began to see patterns in the data and he was working with a pilot and another analyst. And um, what they realized was that they did not have a pilot problem. They had an airplane design problem. And so they came up with ways to shape the tool, you know, basically shape the controls differently. They, they came up with shape coding where you, you know, reposition the controls of an airplane, you shape things that do different things differently so that whenever you're under stress as a pilot, there's smoke in the cockpit, God only knows what chaos is happening, you know, and you're, you can make the right decision and not do the wrong thing and cause a loss of the plane and the crew. So, um, that work is literally the founding of human factors engineering in the United States. And you can even argue that it's part of the founding of user experience as we think of it today. Um, so, you know, the reason I tell that story is people get it in this environment, right? The, first of all, people in our environment have a tremendous respect for the history of the air force. They find it fascinating. They know the planes but they probably didn't know that. And they probably didn't realize that user experience is really deep within the DNA of this organization already. We just haven't been tapping into it for a long time. Makes a lot of sense. And I think you're absolutely right. That story perfectly personifies what, I mean, exactly what you're doing, what your team's looking to do. And, and I, I agree with you. I think storytelling is a great way to get and connect with people um, and, and help you be remembered in, in what you're doing. So when people are, are working on things and thinking about things, that's something that pops in their head. Something I, I want to call out though, that, that you said during your, during your first point that I think is important and I want to make sure it doesn't get lost is you talked about measuring something and, and making it transparent to whomever you're, you're working with. But then you also said in providing solutions to what, to what the problem is. And I think that it, it sounds so simple, but I often think that's that's a missing piece in in what maybe folks in the more technical area don't bring to the folks that are in the non-technical or the more programmatic areas is hey, we've we've seen this, we've been measuring this, right? This is what we're finding. And then these are our recommendations based on this data for next steps. I think that's a huge um, piece of of how folks in your role really help move programs forward that often doesn't get the the type of of spotlight that perhaps it deserves. Hundred percent agree with you, and and I mean I will tell you it's not easy um, because the reality is, you know, if if we're looking to improve performance across a big swath of our bases it requires tremendous expertise in multiple technology stacks. And there are very few individuals, if any, that understand all of those technology stacks. So it gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, both technically and organizationally, right? You know, you can't, you can't go solve big problems in our environment, you know, with a small team of three or four people, right? There's little teams of three or four people in multiple different organizations that each own a chunk of the problem. So, um, yes, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I'm simply saying it's, uh, it's difficult. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think, 
it takes I think time. it's why it doesn't happen so often is because it is so difficult is you're having you're having to, to combine different skill sets with different um, literacies around technology. It is so difficult. So as you're as you're doing this, then I, I'd be curious to know what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing as you're looking to kind of reshape mindset and drive change? Because when I talk to folks like yourself and others, um, especially when they're looking at customer experience, right? Getting even beyond just, just user experience, but even customer experience. They talk about institutionalizing that mindset within, within their own organization, right? It's not even that they don't have access to the technologies that can help or the, the resources that can help, but it's, it is really getting, getting the entire organization to understand and move forward on that type of mindset, on that type of mission. Would you agree with that? Or what, what are some of the, the bigger challenges that you face as you're looking to, to move things forward? Well, I, I, first of all, I agree with you. Getting, getting that kind of alignment is, is essential. Um, and, you know, back to data, I, I, I mean, there's other ways to get that kind of alignment. But the one that I have personally found most effective is you know, when, when you've got about, you know, five to 10 slides, um, where there's very few words, but it's all charts and it's a clear and compelling story that is data driven. Um, and people can look at the charts and you don't really need to tell them what it means. That's when, you know, you, you can align people. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so, you know, if if you if it requires a whole lot of explanation, you're not there yet. Um, and I think we finally have gotten to that point where we now have enough data, and it's all pointing kind of in the same types of directions, and you can literally just lay the charts out on the table, and anybody can plainly see that we must respond. Um, and you don't even have to really explain much of it. You can just ask questions. One of the things that I've done in in my roles as I've been trying to engage people and get them more interested and, and more on board with with what we're doing is kind of leveraging those individuals in that human centered design process, right? Bringing them in, and when they're part of that process from the very beginning, and they feel like they're adding to it, not only do they feel involved and appreciated, but I also just organically, they, they see the importance as they're going through maybe some of the things, the challenges that they didn't even realize they have until they become very intentional about thinking it based on the questions that you're asking or the process you're going through. So I, I'm curious, how important is human-centered design and that entire process to to what you're doing at Air Force? Well, it's, it's critical. I mean, you know, so far we've mostly been talking about enterprise IT, but part of my role is also related to software, mainly enterprise software. And frankly, I tend to focus on applications kind of at the, you know, the end of the curve where we have, you know, north of at least 100,000 users or north of half a million users. And believe it or not, we actually have quite a few applications north of half a million users. And, um, but yes, human-centered design it, it is critical, but we have very few programs that are really doing it today very well. We actually developed a maturity model that's posted on my LinkedIn, well, many months ago. Um, and most of our organizations um, are pretty immature when it comes to human-centered human design. But 
Is it critical? Absolutely. Um, we do have a few places where they're starting to do it um, to some degree of maturity. Um, and I would love to see a lot more. To be honest, I would love to see a lot of our big programs, even if they don't think about it as human-centered design, I would love to see them adopt a number of kind of basic practices, right? You know, let's let's teach the program how to do, you know, sort of basic user testing while they're in development. And a lot of these development cycles are actually quite long. Um, but let's teach them how to do that and have them go do that because I think what they learn from it is going to be transformational and they will end up adopting lots more practices of human-centered design. So I, I try to look for those kinds of opportunities just because I can't go invest full-time with some of these big programs. But I think you know, get, convincing them to adopt user, you know, sort of a user testing program on say a monthly basis with about 10 users in a set of say top three use cases, those kinds of things are good leverage points. So as, as we wrap up, I would love to get an understanding from you. When, you. when you think of experience, what are some of the trends that you're starting to see that you believe are going to be incorporated into kind of mainstream design moving forward? It's a great question. And I'll be honest, um, most of my time, um, I don't get to think about the forward leading, you know, the, 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 you know, what's, what's coming next in the field, uh, because I'm trying to catch a massive organization up to, you know, what frankly was, you know, state of the art 10 years ago. Um, so I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the trends, but I would say this, um, I think, um, user experience at scale, um, in a large organization with a giant portfolio of applications, we have thousands of applications. Um, I think some of these tools, um, and, you know, I talk a lot about data, as you know, um, but some of these tools to capture lots and lots of data that you can use to, um, you know, to uh, iterate your application, I think are really, really cool. Um, and, you know, as a government employee, I'm not supposed to name names, so I won't name any names right now, but some of the some of the ones that you know you're basically you're capturing an entire transaction uh, you can follow a user through their you know transaction flow and you can you know essentially recreate that afterwards figure out where people are messing up that kind of thing so those kinds of tools would be incredibly invaluable in our environment the problem is um, they're all software as a service tools everyone that i know of is a software as a service platform and there's absolutely, I just don't see any possible way we could get it accredited to run inside of our environment, given the nature of what those tools do. But that's the kind of thing where at scale, when you've got hundreds and hundreds of people working in less mature design organizations, I think something like that could be very, very helpful. I feel like we could have an entire conversation about what you just said, because we have so many maybe smaller, more emerging companies that are coming up with some some really cool technologies that support things like that and other things that can help government agencies, uh, Department of Defense especially, that, and you said it, to be able to get kind of hardened to the level that they can be trusted in your environment is difficult. And when you're a smaller company, having the money to invest to get to that type of posture is also very difficult. So you you tend not to get the combination of of the two quite as often, but 
hopefully at some point, I mean, like I said, we could prognosticate about this for a long time, but hopefully at, at some point we're able to find a meeting of the minds and, and get more of those types of companies, I think, engaged with government. Cause I think it could make them um, even more efficient, even more agile um, than kind of what we're seeing today. Colt, I, I really appreciate the time. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners before we go? Measurable UX results. That's what I'm all about. That's what we're driving toward. And um, that's it. Uh, oh, uh, one last thing. Um, we need more UX people in the government. So if if this you know rings true or is interesting to anybody listening and you want to talk about it, um, I, uh, I make this appeal all the time. We need more IT people in the government. We need more UX people. We need more cyber people. Um, and there's lots of opportunities if you want to come in and learn how this works and contribute, you know, for, you know, two, three, four years and then go back to what you're doing now or, or go on to the next thing. Um, there are opportunities to do that and we need a lot more of that. Am, am I wrong to say, weren't you the first chief experience officer within, within DOD? Yes. And I mean, did, are you seeing more of these roles opening up based on the success that you're having? I am actually. Um, so we now have a chief experience officer role at um, A1X, which is our port, it's our personnel area. And that, frankly, that portfolio, when it comes to applications that sort of touch every single person in the organization, right? You know, it's HR, personnel type stuff, right? Everybody uses this. They don't use it all the time unless you're a personnelist. But so we now have a CXO dedicated to just that portfolio of roughly a hundred applications and they are redesigning and rebuilding that. They've had some challenges, but, um, the CXO there, her name is Eileen Laughlin and she's fantastic. She's doing a great job. So yes, we are creating more of these roles. Um, and they're not all CXO, you know, they're, they're design directors and things like that. So, and yes. And then of course we've got defense digital services and us digital services and other things, which are opportunities as well. And we have all of our software factories, and frankly, every one of our software factories has UX people embedded within it. And some of them, you know, some of them fairly senior and then a lot of junior. And sometimes they're coming from outside with experience. Sometimes they are actual airmen that are interested in this and go to some training and are kind of learning the basics of UX alongside other people. Yeah, we had we had Brian Kroger on the show, um, I want to say a couple episodes ago, um, to talk about um, how he helped uh catalyze kessel run and kind of the success that that has kind of bred across uh the department of defense and i mean frankly federal civilian you're seeing some of these pop up and i think i just read an article the other day where the u.s marine corps is is doing their own type of software factory so i think this really speaks to and it kind of brings everything full circle it really speaks to exactly what you started off at the very beginning saying around kind of the generational approach these things and bringing in that type of talent and mindset and and then combining that with the technology and we're seeing amazing things being done so um, i think it's really cool to see colt thank you again like i said i really appreciate the time i think you provided some really great insights here and i appreciate you allowing me to pick your brain a little bit thank you enjoyed it all right guys we'll be right back to continue this conversation around customer experience user experience within the department of defense don't go away
At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. All right, welcome back, guys. Great conversation with Colt. And now I want to add to what we just learned by bringing on two experienced experts from Maximus, Marianne Monroe and Nate Aiken. Marianne is the Senior Director for Total Experience Solutions and Services, and Nate is the market leader for the U.S. Air Force. And I'm really grateful to have you both on the show, and I want to jump right into it. We heard Colt talk a little bit about the nuances of experience in the public sector. I want to draw on your experience a little bit, Marianne, because I know Maximus has a range of federal agency customers. Tell us about the CX work that you've accomplished with them and how it's the same or different from commercial CX. Sure. Thanks, Brian. And thanks for having us today. So yes, at Maximus, we're really fully aligned in driving the federal government's customer experience agenda as outlined in, in several of the key policies that have come through over the last several years, um, including the executive order on improving CX and service delivery. So, you know, we're really laser focused on solving the most complex government challenges and improving federal services to be simple, seamless, and secure. We've accomplished this in a variety of ways. Um, you know, whether it means that we're developing user-friendly mobile apps and um, uh, um, digital services, or delivering customer service to millions of federal student loan borrowers and Medicare beneficiaries. Um, we serve a wide variety of customers, both in, in the defense arena, the health arena in the federal government, as well as, as civilians. So any, anything from providing our veterans with vital medical disability examinations to student loan borrowers, um, the range of our customers that we serve on behalf of the federal government is, is large and wide. Um, I think the common thread is that we really put the customers at, at the center of how we design, build, deploy, and improve our services at the end of the day. Um, that's really um, critical for us so that we can be um, in step with our federal partners, but also um, elevating and continuing to focus on the experiences and services we provide to those people. Let me ask you this. I mean, you mentioned a couple of things there that might have felt like almost science fiction for government just a few years ago, like go figure a mobile app, right? What has been over the past few years, what have seen what have you seen like from a willingness standpoint for government to jump into some of these these technologies and these, I guess, experience platforms for citizens? Yeah, I think we've seen um, quite an explosion of, of platforms that really help to um, elevate customer experience and provide tools right at the desktop for all levels. The, the people on the front lines providing services, as well as managers who are, um, who are running program operations and need to be, you know, uh, really elevating uh, the performance and understanding what's happening at every, every moment, um, you know, during the day. So I think we've seen a, a vast um, advancement 
in the federal government using these types of tools and also uh, using them to help understand better what is what is happening overall um, in the services that they're providing and understanding those customer insights to help them better drive um, or change the direction they're going or drive um, improvements in different areas based on the data that's accessible to them now more than ever. I'm glad you touched on data because I think that's so important. I know Colt really emphasized that when we talked about the research he was doing. And honestly, one of the reasons why I was so excited to have um, uh, Kate and or Colt and yourselves on the show was to kind of focus a little bit on kind of DOD and military uh, UX and CX, because I don't feel like it always gets the type of attention that perhaps federal civilian or even at the state and local levels of government do. So Nate, I, I, I'm looking at you. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the military culture here, because I know there's more command and control where orders are given as opposed to really considering how well a service member's experience is whenever they're engaging with technology and, and really doing it for uh, the mission outcome. So why is there this shift into a, an emphasis on user experience and, and customer experience within the military? Hey, Brian, thanks for the question. And as Marianne stated, I'm really happy to be here and, and discuss this topic. So I think there's a couple of reasons why you see that shift when in customer experience and user experience coming into the forefront of conversation of defense service members. Um, one being that the, the missions and operations are continuing and, and even more so now relying on data ingest and using applications for mission execution. You know, whether that is a watch standard that is um, using a, a common operating picture application to see you know, friendly forces or a, a logistician who is tracking um, supply chains uh, across the world, those, those applications have to be intuitive. They have to be easily used. Service members don't have the time to uh, or, or can't afford a, a big ramp up in uh, getting trained up or long computer-based trainings. They, you know, these things, they have to be efficient and they have to be effective. So how are the, you know, developing through that, through that lens that to improve the customer experience by the usability of the application and not taking away from time where um, our service members need to be focused on doing their jobs, operations, and the mission. I think that's why that that shift is is happening, and, and customer experience and user experience are you know more in the forefront of the conversation. The other reason is the the military workforce is changing. Um, there is a new generation um, that is that is entering the ranks as junior airmen and sailors and Marines and soldiers. And the way that they interact with technology is very much different from my generation and, and more senior leaders. So they are they they are the iPhone generation. They're they're familiar with tablets and touch screens. And uh, so in order for the systems and the tools to be most optimally developed for that generation, we have to look at how that they interact. What are their what are their navigation preferences? How do they like to 
receive information? How do they like to input information? How do they interpret information visually and manually? So that's, you know, that we're, we're looking at both from a technology as well as a human aspect. Um, and I think we'll probably get into a little bit, a little bit more of this in, you know, human centered design and, and user design philosophies in agile and, and DevSecOps. So I know that's a really long answer to, you know, to, to your question, but I think that, that you have to look at it from both the user and the tool that is being provided. I think that's exactly right. And it's a common theme that we, we discuss on the show across a number of different um, factors is generation. And I think that that's played a huge part, not only in CX, but another thing I wanted to call out that I think is, is vitally important. Um, during the pandemic, I think that's one of the times that we really saw CX and UX really boil to the surface, right? And part of it because the importance of getting perhaps services to, to citizens faster, tip of the spear, um, was so vital because it was literally life and death for citizens, whether, whether they're getting... Uh, their food stamps and, and being able to feed their families, um, helping them find jobs so they can be able to support their families. But from a military perspective, I think just like in federal, uh, CX was seemed that seemed like a nice to have for a long time. The mission of the military and the Department of Defense is is literally life and death. It becomes so crucial, and I think starting to see that UX, CX plays a pivotal part in saving lives. Are you feeling that when you're working with, with the Air Force and, and other, other branches of the military? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I want to reference something that, that Colt has said in previous interviews um, in, you know, how he defines as the chief experience officer for the Air Force. And, and if, if, you're, if your listeners are not aware, the first service, by the way, to, to have a chief experience officer. but mm -hmm. You know, his perspective is he is not looking for an emotional experience, you know, that that it is uh, as as opposed to maybe a commercial industry where, you you know, you have a buyer or you have a customer and you want their experience to elicit some type of emotion um, with their customer experience. Customer experience in the Air Force, as we talked about, is the efficiency of the application to accomplish the mission. And you talk about the criticality of these, that, that what these applications play and where I have seen that, where the, we, you know, you're looking at manpower, developing force structure, you're looking mm -hmm. at equipment, um, the, the readiness and status of equipment, the supplies, training, um, ammunition, all of these mission critical elements that come together to execute operations in support of the national defense strategy are now all enabled by applications. We have moved, we have become a digital defense force across all domains, but in the Air Force, especially when the, and the role that the Air Force has in space and cyberspace, that domain very much exists because of the advancement and the utilization and and increasing utilization of technology. So yes, the 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 digital development and IT modernization and customer experience all are now life and death matters for our for our defense customers. You just touched on a lot of things, and one of the things I think about is the Air Force has lines of efforts in its CIO strategy for cybersecurity for cloud. 
IT portfolio development, data, AI, so on and so forth. And honestly, CX is one of those horizontal technologies that can kind of plug into all these areas. I mean, you were throwing out other other things. I mean, it's really vast. How do you how do you suppose that an organization like Air Force and others, how do you approach this so there isn't kind of a weakest link situation where CX in in one area um, doesn't match the others and kind of the, the mission starts to break apart. How do you, how do you make that connective tissue to make sure, um, there is no weak link, everything is strong and everything's moving forward with a mission orientation, uh, purpose. Well, Brian, the first thing I think you do is you look at, um, CIO Nossenberger's lines of effort and her public CIO public strategy as, a single element and not six discrete activities. The everything fits together um, as a piece of the puzzle for the digital ecosystem. So to ensure that you don't have a weakest link scenario, I think you have to define what is the element of CX for each one of those things. Cloud, cybersecurity, application modernization, data, AI, ML, all of those things have a customer experience, user experience element to them. So in cybersecurity and the zero trust architecture and um, that you have to look at how do you make a secure environment, but that does not become hindering to um, actually using the tool, you know, does you do. You don't want to have to sign on six times through, you know, through using an application. Yep. So, you know, but you all, but at the same time from the, from the DevSecOps and, and application development standpoint, you know, how do, what is, what is the actual user interface? Is it clean? It is intuitive. Um, from the cloud standpoint, you know, how are you, you know, are, are, is, is, is your cloud structure, uh, set up for fast and seamless and secure data transfer so that users can get the information and input the information and, and access the information and data that they need. So I guess my answer to that is you apply CX to every one of those lines of effort and and individually define what it means. And then you develop a, comp a comprehensive picture where they all fit together for one singular capability. It makes sense, and and Marianne, you and I were were kind of geeking out about this before we before we pressed record. Um, Colt earlier talked a little bit about how user experience and customer experience has become more of a priority for leadership. You and I, Marianne, were kind of talking about how one of the biggest challenges is really doing exactly what you just said, Nate. It's really kind of institutionalizing the importance of uh, user experience, customer experience within an organization, whether it's, whether it's a federal civilian, whether it's a department of defense or military branch, that's the biggest challenge. So, yes. so Marianne, I, I mean, they know the impact, right? They know it's going to drive the mission forward, but what are some of the ways that, that you at Maximus are being able to work with organizations to help them do just that, right? To, to really ground themselves in the understanding that, this is, this is how we drive success. Yes. Yeah. I think what Nate just described was great. And honestly, it's thinking about customer experience or end user experience from the beginning. 
And it is the fiber that weaves into the business strategy overall, just like Nate described, whether it's cloud, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, it's a fiber and a strategy that you, you have to, you know, you're piecing together a lot of elements, but, but customer experience runs through the thread. So how have we done this at Maximus or how have we enabled our agency partners to do this? Um, number one, it, you have to align from the top with what the vision and the mission is of the agency and understand that fully. And um, as agencies continue to evolve in their um, their journeys with um, integrating customer experience discipline into the fiber of, of how they think, how they work, how they budget, how they procure services. Um, it, it, it's a constant effort of alignment um, at every step of the way. So in other words, not viewing customer experience as something separate or bolted on it's woven in. And I think we're seeing that more and more as we work with our agency partners in this area. So understanding their vision and their goals for modernization are so critical to our success, helping our agencies be successful in their mission. So that's number one, having that vision, understanding it, communicating it, and evolving it and continuing to communicate it, um, it, it is so critical. And then um, secondly, Brian, I think it's really important from the beginning to be thinking about and understanding, defining what success looks like as we're developing strategies to enable our agency partners. What does success look like? That's different when you're talking about all of these different pieces that Nate just described, right? It, in, in one area, it's improving operational efficiencies, right? In other areas, it's reducing time to deployment of applications that enable our, our military and our service members to, to be ready, um, to be ready for uh, mission critical um, uh, uh, performance that they need to you know, execute. So I think the measurement of what success looks like is so critical to be thinking about that from the beginning, right? And defining that together with our agency partners. Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of what you just said was really kind of aligned around listening. Really, it's un, it's understanding the organization. I mean, Nate, would you agree? I, I would agree. And you know, Marianne brought up a great point about partnership and the way that Maximus approaches customer experience and user experience and 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 all elements of you know of our delivery. Um, it's you know understanding what the contribution is in that partnership. The, you know, the government is. It is incumbent upon us to work with our government partners to help clearly define requirements and design documents so that so the solutions that we build can produce the performance data that is needed to measure and assess effectiveness and user experience. So I think that what Marion said is so important is looking at the full life cycle of development as the roadmap to assessing the quality of the experience. And another element that, that Maximus brings is our agile approach to development. Um, Colt mentioned, and it's not, not an original thought of mine, I have to give him credit for it, that 
DevSecOps is the key to effective customer experience because it gives you the ability to iteratively develop against changing requirements, new users, new functionality, rather than, you know, the legacy waterfall development method where you build a tool and it sits on the shelf or it's static for five years until a new contract is available to, to build another tool. Um, so, you know, that's, there's, there's so many elements to this and the roles that each organization from Maxima side as well, our government partner side play together to make, um, to achieve the customer experience and user experience objectives. What Nate describes in terms of our, you know, the DevSecOps and so forth. One of the things too here to inject is the importance of human-centered design in this process, right? And really uh, designing with and for the people we're developing our products and services for. And it's been You're really reading, nice. Reading my mind, absolutely yeah. reading my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's just been really nice to to see how Colt has elevated this and implemented this in the Air Force with implementing um, user-centered design experts into their software factories and programs and adding UX professionals to software teams and, and lead those efforts um, to, to improve the user experience. We're doing the same thing at Maximus and it's really critical to success because if you're not um, if you're not practicing human-centered design approaches and, and, and immersing them into your um, development life cycle, you're, you're completely missing the mark. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, Nate, you touched on kind of the life cycle of an application, right? Or a program or initiative. And that's the only way to really truly understand how it impacts everybody is to break it down and, and get to that granular level to figure out how is this going to make change? How is it going to drive us forward? So I think that's that's a key piece um, that I think has been missing for a long, long time, and over the past decade or so has really been incorporated into government and how they approach it. Part of it because exactly what you said, Nate. It's a it's a generational thing, right? We've I, I had this conversation with with Donieski from from the Navy where we talked about you have kind of fresh ideas, fresh minds coming from a younger generation. Um, and getting that diversity of thought that's bringing some of these concepts into, into government, into, into the Department of Defense as well to, to kind of drive that forward. What are, some, what are some things that you're seeing specific to that, Nate, within Air Force? And can you give an example or two of how you're seeing um, a focus on CX really help um, the airmen and airwomen do their jobs better, faster, more economically? Sure, absolutely, Brian. So uh, the first example I would give you is in the help desk contact center world. So Maximus as an industry leader in um, contact center services is also, you know, bringing advanced technology and solutions. So improving the user experience of the help desk function creates several different advantages. One advantage is for the actual call center representative. So if they have an interface that helps them bring a more human and person-centric approach to the, to, to the function that they're performing, then the end user is ultimately going to also receive the benefit of that. So, you know, looking at solutions where you can see how many times has this person called the help desk? What are, what are their problems? You know, um, where are they calling from where, you know, it, so it, instead of just two voices on a phone, 
an improved user experience and 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 customer experience interface for the help desk is more efficient, cuts down, reduces time to actually solve issues. And it's no secret those issues are many times, you know, hindering accomplishing a mission, whether it's logging into a system or, you know, getting permissions to to be able to access something. So, you know, there the, the trickle down effect of improved customer experience and a help desk um, environment is you know cost savings, more efficiency, and also a um, a, a happier and uh, and better served uh, force. So that's one example. Um, I mentioned earlier about the the applicate what applications are being used for um, the the operating environment now is joint and it's multilateral. It means that Air Force Navy, Marine Corps, Army are working interoperably in a joint all-domain command and control construct, but we're also working with our partners, the AUKUS, with the with the the Australians, the British, the the Japanese, the the Koreans. Um, so information sharing has to occur in that environment. So the user experience of how to you know cross cultures across all of our different partner and nation um, and, and allies in application development in sharing information data sensor data fusing data intelligence um, that's another example of you know how that that in the defense world that an improved user experience can enhance missions. I think that's a really good point um, that we didn't even touch on with Colt, but something really key to think about is how you're not only working across services um, within within U the U.S. military, but you're also working with our allies um, interoperably to be able to kind of achieve that overall mission. I think the world now is very different than than it it was before, and and we need those not only technologies, but obviously we need the the understanding and mindset to be able to kind of build a culture around we're better together and we need to be able to to work together in a very constructive, unsiloed way. Um, so really, really good point, Nate. I like that a lot. And as we're, as we're starting to wrap up, um, I want to ask each of you one more question. It's going to be the exact same question um, to get your opinion here. And it's a really, really simple question, but it's not so simple to do um, as, as are most things. How do you, and I'm, I'm going to start with you, Marianne, how do you make CX sustainable within an organization, within an environment so that operational excellence and mission fulfillment kind of is, is paramount and moves forward? Yes, um, you're so right, Brian. Um, it's, it's not as easy as it, as it sounds. So, I think operationalizing a customer experience strategy within an organization and within within a whole department in defense is is a large task and it's a continuous one. So I would say, you know, uh, the first thing is setting that vision and communicating it, communicating it, and communicating it because um, if you don't have the vision and the alignment from the top of the agency or organization, I mean, that's that's the start of this. And then you have to build that strategy 
into operations. So I I know with the Air Force, um, Colt is 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 really elevating the focus on that in his his current role. But their mission focused on improving warfighter effectiveness of their IT systems. That's critical. So setting that vision and communicating critical. Um, there's some other things that I think are very core and fundamental to really helping um, grow these roots and, and, and ensuring that they take root within an agency. Formalizing voice of customer program activities and understanding. Um, they're doing that in the Air Force as well through their AFIT Pulse um, program, like understanding end users' Um, issues, problems, using applications, um, critical, understanding the employees who are using them as well. Um, That's the second thing. Um, We've already touched on focusing um, on human-centered design methods and and building those into everything we do from the beginning and throughout the the development life cycle. So critical. Those are just a few. I'm sure Nate's going to add a lot more to that. Yeah, Nate, same question. Let's let's get your get your take. I think that it's so it's everything Marianne said, but you know, and, and from the defense standpoint, and, and I'll get specific to the Air Force, it's so important to design from a mission focused perspective. Um, and and I mean, what does that look like? You know, bringing your end users into the development progress process, meeting with them, understanding what their requirements are. It sounds kind of a duh, you know, why why would you not do that? But, you know, so often it's overlooked that what these, what these applications are actually going to be used for. So understanding that process helps, you know, sustain the customer experience because then CX and UX, because then the customer is heard. You know, it's, I think Marianne's point about the voice of the customer in a feedback, in a, in a, in a dynamic feedback loop, that's really important. But your users, from a change management perspective, are going to be much more likely, I believe, to participate in that feedback if they're brought in early and, they're, and, and they know that their opinion and their input is valued from the start goes back to that partnership creation aspect. You know, how are we creating integrated teams where all partners are involved, not just development and deploy and then wait for the next requirement to come along? So it, you, it's, it's, a, it's mission, mission, mission. Understand your users, understand what they're going to be doing and design from the standpoint of how what makes their ability to do that mission fastest, most efficient and um, and in the way that is best for them. I, I think one of the one of the key takeaways from this conversation is, I mean, we really didn't talk about the technology that much because it's really much more of a culture conversation. It's really much more of a people conversation. Um, so I think it, it's not surprising. I mean, it's something we talk about all the time. Frankly, I, I mean, I haven't had many episodes that covered so much ground. Um, and I think we had two really interesting, interesting and important conversations, first of all with Colt and then um, now with you, Marianne and Nate. Thank you both so much for being here and contributing to this wealth of knowledge. Thank you for having us, Brian. Thank you for having us. 
And for those listening, I hope you enjoyed these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. I think I'm the fortunate one that gets the front row seat to these. So um, again, feeling, uh, feeling really grateful for that. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.